Good morning. Would you join me in Romans chapter 2? Romans chapter 2. Lord willing, we'll finish up chapter 2 of Romans. Uh, We've been in this book for a couple of months already. Uh, Someone's joking earlier that I might be done chapter 6 by Christmas. I said, please, we'll be at least through chapter 8 by Christmas. Uh, I like expositional preaching, um, given reasons for that in the past. Um, You don't get to dodge hard areas and you don't get to camp out in your little honey spots. uh, And, you know, the same thing again and again. Uh, I'll go ahead and confess to you. The passage we're going to look at today, if you were doing a topical series or just kind of hopping around different places around Scripture, you would not preach today's passage. It literally would just never get touched uh, unless you are systematically working through Scripture or dealing with the particular group of people that it'll be talking about. In a few minutes, we'll read the passage, but I need to lay a little bit of groundwork, and here's the introduction. You've got to remember a couple of things about the writer of Romans. He calls himself a Hebrew of the Hebrews. That's very important. Paul says, I'm not only a Jew, man, I'm a Jew of the Jews. I'm a Jew through and through. My daddy was a Hebrew. My mama was a Hebrew. My daddy was a Pharisee. I I, I know all these things. Here's the second thing you need to remember about him. Later on in this same book, He, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, will confess, literally, he would say, I will go to hell for eternity if my people, Israel, would be saved. That's really heavy. He's a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I would die and go to hell for my people. He really loves them. Here's what he's going to say to us today. I know how you think. I know how my people think. Jews, I am one of you. I know your thoughts better than you do. I thought them at a higher level, more intensely than you you think them. One of the things that we notice in Scripture that he really was accused of, but if you read Paul's writings, he never told a Jew who came to Christ for salvation to repudiate and abandon their heritage. He never told them that. In fact, if I were a Jew and I came to Christ for salvation, I'd say you're foolish to abandon your heritage. Why? It's the best one out there. Why would you abandon? I love being an American. Uh, and I love being a Bartlett. I have a great family. But, it, I mean, we can't compare with the Jewish heritage. Paul never tells them to just abandon that when you come to Christ. But here's his message. He wants the Jew to know that your salvation is just like everyone else's. It is by grace on God's end where he literally gives salvation, but it is by faith on your end. It's by faith on your end, and it will result in a life that is changed. It's by faith, but your life, if you really have faith in Christ and God comes into your life, your life will change. Here's the difficult thing. I I know I'm a little bit behind the eight ball today. Say, why is that? Because we're going to be reading a passage that is written to Jewish people. We've hit a section that's very clearly. He's already been building toward it. We've kind of been splitting. Yeah, he's talking about the Jew, but also including us. Here's our difficult thing. Here's my challenge. We are in 2017, Americans. Here we are looking at the Bible to see what it says about them. You catch that? Here's us looking here to see what it says about them. Here's what we like to do. 
I want to look at the scripture, see what it says about me. So here's my challenge. There are lessons for us to be learned. There are parallels. If I were to try to stop and after the interpretation make all the various applications to us in 2017 in the American church, we really would be here longer than I'm already going to keep you. Okay? And we can't do that. There'll be a couple of those times where I'm going to pause and I'm going to do that and I'm going to make obvious application. But if you're a Christian, I'm going to ask you right now, literally, listen to me, but hopefully talk to God and say, Lord, help me while we're looking at your word for the Jews. Lord, Holy Spirit, you make the application to my life the same lessons you're teaching them. I want to encourage you to do that. So here's what Paul's teaching. Jews, don't trust your Judaism. Now, I'm going to give you right off the bat three things that the Jew of that day, Paul knows them well because he was one of them. This this described his former life. He's saying there's three things that they would lean on in their thinking. By the way, they really, really believe this. They're convinced of it. Three things are going to exempt them from judgment. We've been talking a lot about judgment lately in chapter 1 and 2. Paul knows that his Jewish audience would hear everything he had to say in chapter 1 about the vile, wicked sinners who wanted nothing to do with God and they went away and chose sin and wallowed in sin and they're going to get judgment. And the Jew would say, that's right, Paul, you tell them. And at the start of chapter 2, Paul knows that the Gentiles who are kind of religious, not the pagan ones that have nothing to do with God, uh oh, here's this other group, and they would judge them. But Paul would say, yeah, my Jewish audience would look over my shoulder as I'm talking to the Gentile religious ones who have a problem with them, but here's what they think. Hey, I'm better than them. I'm going to be exempt from judgment. The Jew would say, oh, no, you're not. And then surely the blessings of God in my life mean I will always be blessed. Oh, no, you will not. Here's another thought that came out of the early part of chapter 2. Surely because God is love, he's going to go soft on my sin. And the Jew would agree with Paul. That's right, you tell him. God will not go soft on your sin because his justness will cause him to have to punish your sin unless you receive Christ's payment on the cross. Now here Paul's going to say, hey, thank you for agreeing with everything I've said over my shoulder. Now I need to address you. Because you, by and large, as a nation of individuals... You think there are three things that are going to keep you exempt from judgment. Number one, they thought since they possessed and had a knowledge of the law, hey, we get in. We're the Jews. We have the law. We possess it. We've got a good working knowledge of it. God's going to let us skate by. Secondly, I was circumcised early on in my life. Surely, as a child, I was circumcised. That means I'm going to get in. I'm going to be exempt from judgment. Paul is going to let them know, no, you're not. They, they literally had in their rabbinical writings, the writings of the rabbis, some of the older ones had a belief that Abraham himself sat near, not near to be punished or near the flames, but sat near enough to the gates of hell that any circumcised Jew who appeared to be headed to hell, he would stop that and not let it happen. They honestly thought that. And the other was what we've been hinting at. Hey, I'm exempt from judgment. I'm one of Abraham's descendants. I'm a child of Abraham. He has promises. I'm in on it. I can never go to hell. Paul's going to let him know. You're trusting the law. You're trusting your circumcision. You're trusting your being Abraham's children. That's going to get you by. And he's going to address all of those in today's passage. So with that in mind, would you look with me at verse number 17. And let's read through the end of the chapter and you'll see the message as it unfolds. Verse number 17. Again, he's hit the pagans. He's hit the religious. 
He's talked about what's going to happen to the people who never had a copy of the Bible, never heard of the name Jesus. Will they still go to hell? Oh, yes, they will still deserve hell because their conscience will show that they, even though they didn't have the written law, they still sinned against their own conscience. They still did what they knew was wrong. They'll be judged by the standard they had. What about the, the people who had the law? Well, they're going to be judged by the law because they had more light but still sinned against more light. So they'll be judged a little more strictly. Now Paul turns his attention, verse 17. Let's read it. But if you call yourself a Jew, that's an important phrase, you call yourself a Jew. You're the one that's calling yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent. Why are all those things true in verse 17 and 18? Here's why. Because you are instructed from the law. From the time they were little bitty boys, they were instructed in the law. Go down to the synagogue and then during the week, they, they, they had the catechism. Here's, here's what would happen to the Jews. Man, you ask them a question about, about theology and the little boys learn to regurgitate all the answers. By the way, it's not a bad thing as long as what they're being taught is true. Bring up a subject. Oh, yeah, here's what we believe on that. And off they go. So he says, you call yourself a Jew, you rely on the law, you boast in God, you know God's will, you approve what's excellent. Why? Because you've been instructed from the law. But verse 19, because of being instructed in the law, you are sure. You're absolutely convinced. You are totally sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind. A light. You're a light to those who are in darkness. An instructor of the foolish. A teacher of children. Yeah, bring them on in. Bring the kids in. I can teach them this. What's the subject this week? Oh, I learned that when I was their age. Let me tell them. Okay, Paul says, you see yourself as that? Having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. So you've been instructed and you've come to these conclusions. And he switches gears in verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? I wonder if just reading that phrase, anyone in our audience this morning, just that phrase, that little line brought you conviction. My, my prayer is the Holy Spirit will be applying, though the message is to the Jews, that he'll be applying throughout these universal truths. Paul's question, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say, you don't just know it, you say that one must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, idolatry is wrong, it's sinful. God is not like that. Do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, quoting Isaiah or Ezekiel or both, summarizing the idea in the Old Testament, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. In the third section of our text today. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. As good as, as if it hadn't happened. And he gives an example. So if a man who is uncircumcised, he's a Gentile, never been circumcised. But if he keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised, so he's never had circumcision, but he keeps the law, he will condemn you 
who have the written code, you know the letter of the law, and circumcision, but break the law. He's going to condemn you. It doesn't mean this Gentile who keeps the law, but he just hasn't been circumcised. It doesn't mean he's going to be their judge. It means he's going to make them look really, really bad on the day of judgment because they didn't have all the advantages you had, but they lived a better life than you had. And then he completes the text in verse 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Let's look at three things today. Number one, empty claims. Did you catch the empty claims in verses 17 to 20? Empty claims. What were those? Because these people, these Jews, were instructed from the time they were just little children and well-versed in Scripture, they're instructed from the law, and they began, because of that, to hold on to and cling on to in their life to several empty claims. They were empty claims, but they held to them. They believed them. What are they? They relied on the law. We have the law. We have possession of the law. We know things. They boasted in God. Watch this. We know there is a God. We know his name. We know a lot of things about him. He made a promise to our ancestor. We boast Jehovah, Yahweh is our God. They knew God's will according to the text. They know what God likes, what he doesn't like. In fact, the text says they approved what is excellent. You say, what does that mean? Because they were so well versed, they literally, they could take a topic. Hey, what about this? Is this right or wrong? And they could say, ooh, that's bad. And they could even say, that's actually worse than that. And that's the worst of all. And they'd be right. They'd get it right because they're so well-versed. And some, they'd be like, now, now that's good. That's a good thing. And that's actually even better than that. Now, that's the best. That's what you... And they'd be right. So they have this working knowledge of the law. They know about God. They know what God likes and doesn't like. They can kind of evaluate and discern and give you good understanding and be your teacher and your guide. And as a result of that, they saw themselves as instructors and light to the blind. Here's the problem. J.I. Packard is going to help us now. Here I'm going to make an application. His text is talking mainly to us as, as Christians, but I'm going to apply it to Really, this describes the Jews. J.I. Packer writes the following about these empty claims. He shows the, the danger of spiritual assumption. He writes, quote, it's in your handout. A little knowledge of God, a little knowledge of God is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about God. Chew on that a second. A little knowledge of God is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about God. Who here has ever been to the Holy Land? My hand's not up. Raise your hand if you've ever, keep it up. Keep it up, I'm looking over here. Nobody in that section, anybody in this section ever been to the Holy Land? This section, three, four, about four or five people here have been. I want you guys to imagine you're, you're going to go to the Holy Land. You're kind of excited about it. You've saved up, what is that, four or five thousand dollars, I would imagine. You get over there, you're on the bus, dude's on, on the microphone in the bus. If you'll look off to your left and you'll look off to your right. But your guide's a little unusual because he's kind of squinting and he sees the plaque and he looks on something, scrolls down, hits a button. All right, if you'll look off to your end, he starts telling you all these facts, right? And it's very impressive. And you're learning some things about Jerusalem. And finally you get off and hit the little sh coffee shop in the restroom real quick. And as you get back on, so now do you live in Jerusalem? No, no, I don't live in Jerusalem. Okay. Uh, where do you live? South Carolina. Oh, really? Yeah. So how many times have you been to Jerusalem? This is my first time. What? You've never actually been to... No. Well, how do you know? Oh, I've, I've got books and charts and I've got an app. 
You've never even been. Guys, listen. A little knowledge of God is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about. So you've never actually experienced Jerusalem. Well, I am doing it with you. You don't know this city. You know things about the city. Packer breaks this idea down into two thoughts. The first one kind of repeats the one we've already done. Point number one. One can know a great deal about God without much knowledge of God. And that's Paul's point this morning. The Jews, they knew a great deal of knowledge about God, but no knowledge of God. And he breaks that down. I'm going to read, so forgive me. I have two long quotes from Packer this morning on this section. One can know a great deal of knowledge about God without having any knowledge of God. He says, I'm sure that many of us have never really grasped this. Hey, check yourself. Check yourself. We find in ourselves, this is not going to be everyone here, but this is going to be several of us in here this morning. We find in ourselves a deep interest in theology. We read books of theological exposition and apologetics. We dip into Christian history, study the Christian creed. We learn to find our way around in the scriptures. Others appreciate our interest in these things. And we find ourselves, because of that, asked to give our opinion in public on this or that Christian question. We're asked to lead study groups, to give papers, write an article, generally to accept responsibility for acting as teachers of orthodoxy in our own Christian circle. You say, mine isn't big, but down on the job, they do know I go to church. And so when Christians, what does the Bible say? And they ask me, okay, they look to you. He says, our friends tell us how much they value our contribution. Well, you know what that does. That spurs us to further exploration of God's truth so that we can be equal to the demands that they're placing on us. I want to be ready with the answers. And so we learn more and more and we dig. Packer says, that's all very fine. It's all fine. Yet interest in theology and knowledge about God and the capacity to think, think and talk well on Christian themes is not at all the same thing as knowing God. It's not the same thing. Second thought. You say it's the same thing. No, it's not. Slightly different. Watch this. Packer, point number two. Write this down. One can know a great deal about godliness. Godliness without much knowledge of God. I don't have the exact quote, but he talks about it. It depends who you hang out with, who you spend your time with. Why? Back to his quote. He says, there's no shortage of books on the church book tables. We've got a whole wall right outside my right, hand, my right hand here, just on the other side of that wall, whole wall of a library. He says, there's no shortage. That's not a bad thing. That's good. He says, there's no shortage of books on the church book tables or sermons from the pulpits on how to pray, how to witness, how to read our Bibles. By the way, I've taught all three of those since I've been here on Wednesday night. How to pray, how to witness, how to read our Bibles, how to tithe our money, how to be a young Christian, how to be an old Christian, how to be a happy Christian, how to get consecrated, how to lead people. I'm kind of doing the Carlton, aren't I? How to be a happy Christian, a consecrated Christian, how to lead people to Christ. But here's the thing. He says, whatever else may be said about this state of affairs, it certainly makes it possible to learn a great deal, here's the key word, secondhand about the practice of Christianity. He says, yet one can have all of this and hardly know God at all. You ever been here? Prayer. What do you think? Oh, prayer. You got to pray in Jesus' name. That doesn't mean just say Jesus' name. That means you've you got to talk to God and bring in Christ and realize that his death on the cross is what allows you to even have an audience with God. And you, you pray, pray to the Father. By and large, there are times you may pray to the Spirit, you may pray to the Son, but by and large, you're praying through the Son to the Father in the power of the Spirit. Now, prayer... 
Don't just ask for things. You need to have a time of adoration and have a time of confession and give thanks and then ask for things. And maybe you ask for things for yourself or you intercede, intercede for other people and people on the job go, that's awesome. That is great. Now, when and where do you pray? Oh, I don't pray. I don't pray. I can tell you how to. Oh, you got a lot of head knowledge. Did I just describe you this morning? Did I just describe you this morning? Could you literally say everything you said about prayer? I could have taught that. How's your prayer life this past week? Because if it's empty, you just have a bunch of empty claims. Second point this morning. Not only empty claims, but mismatched lives. This is a real problem. Mismatched lives. Look at again, verse 21. Paul says, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? And this will be a section we're going to apply a little bit to ourselves. When you teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You that say that, no, uh, that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor, abhor idols, do you rob temples? What Paul is saying is, the Jews that he's talking to, and this could be applied to many others, you learn all these facts from Scripture. In fact, you know them so well, you get up and actually teach other people. But in all of that preaching and teaching, did you ever talk to yourself about these things? Did you ever apply them to yourself? He gave us three examples. One is stealing. You know that stealing is wrong. Absolutely. It's one of the commandments. Thou shalt not steal. And look at all these examples. And, and what Paul is saying is our, the Jewish nation, you could quote it and you could teach all these passages. And yet if you read the Old Testament, guys, you find that often, and there's a sample in your handout, often the Jews were accused of stealing. Look at Ezekiel 22. We'll just have it brought up on the screen. Ezekiel 22 Verse number 12, they're accused of taking bribes and, and charging excessive interest to the poor. You say, where's that at? In Ezekiel 22, this is a, a prophecy from Ezekiel against the city of Jerusalem. Watch what he says about Jerusalem. Hey, Jerusalem, in you, they take bribes. By the way, before this, there were many sexual sins. He, he, before this, he says, you got people in your city. They're sleeping with their, daughter, their, their daughter-in-law. They're sleeping with their, sis, their, their, their stepsister or half-sister. They're sleeping with their neighbor's wife, their father's wife. you got people killing people. Now, look at this verse. In you, Jerusalem, they take bribes to shed blood. That is not your money. You're taking money to cause people to be killed or to turn the other way when someone was killed. You take interest in profit. In other words, you, you're charging interest to poor people when God specifically told them not to do that. You make gain of your neighbors by extortion, but me you have forgotten, declares the Lord. Secondly, in Amos chapter 8, verse number 4 and 5, what are they accused of? Using dishonest scales, dishonest measurements. Amos 8, 4 and 5 says this, Hear this, you who trample on the needy. These are the people who stand up and teach every week. You shouldn't steal. But he says, hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over? Hey, when can we start selling again? We're ready to sell grain. When will the Sabbath be over? That we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small, the measurement small, and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances. Here's what they're saying. New moon, man, we've got to have an extra Sabbath day, an extra time to worship the Lord. Boy, I can't wait till tomorrow morning. I'm ready to make some more money. 
Why? Because I've got a little scam working where when someone buys something from me, they think they're buying the genuine article, but I'm diluting it down. But not only that, it's great. I'm giving them a smaller portion than they think they're getting. And then when I weigh their money, I've got the scales kind of tricked. And so it actually is going to take more of their money to give what they think they're giving. You guys remember when ice cream was a half gallon? I don't know when they did this. They just all got together and just scammed us. And now the ones who still offer a half gallon brag about it. Still half gallon. It's a scam. You're stealing people's monies. You're doctoring the scales. You're, you're, you're doctoring the measurements. You're robbing people. Another big one is Malachi 3 verse 8 and 9. Look at this. Will man rob God? Now I know you're writing the text already. Catch what I'm about to say. Paul's talking to a group of people, the Jews, who knew not to steal. In fact, if they were here this morning and those wicker baskets that were passed and some people put their money in, literally, you could leave it in front of them and everyone exit the building. And if it were not locked away, they could be the last one here. And they're setting the code and walking out. They wouldn't touch a penny. I mean, cash. Not in the envelope, not checks. I would take that, but that's not written to me. That'll never work. I'll just grab the cash. I'm talking about people who would never do that. Why? Because that's God's money. You don't steal God's money. Are you kidding? Do you know what God would do to you? That'd be brazen. Will man rob God? God says through Malachi, yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed God? In your tithes and contributions. You're cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. In fact, verse number 10 starts with this. Bring the whole tithe. That was the message to the nation of Israel. You know what he's saying? Oh, you would never take the actual money from that has been given to me. But you're robbing me because you don't actually give to me yourself. But they knew not to steal. Verse number 22. Look at our text. You say that one must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? They knew adultery is wrong. They stand up and teach everybody that it's wrong, and yet here's the problem. When they're tired of their wife, you know what they do? They find a little loophole, and they undermine Moses' writings. They're like, hey, yeah, uh, listen, you should not commit adultery against your wife. I mean, you know, when you're married to her, you don't need to, you don't need to be with another woman. So here's what I'm going to do. I need to divorce you because I'm kind of attracted to her now. You say, that's crazy, that's silly. They literally did that. Oh, that's simple. I'll just divorce you and marry the new one that I want. Oh, fixes that. Here's another thing they did. They committed adultery in their heart. I wrote this down last night. It's almost as if I haven't actually touched anyone, but if I were to actually carry out the act of adultery, that one there would be a candidate. You ever seen that? You ever been there? Where, hey guys, is this you? Is this you this morning? Your eyes are, con- you, you may be faithful in your body, but your eyes and your heart are totally unfaithful because you're constantly looking for potential people that if you were to do the act of adultery, that's a candidate. Ooh, there's a candidate. Ooh, there's one. You're being unfaithful. It's sin. Jesus says you're committing adultery in your heart. But maybe the worst of all, Paul knows Israel is married to Jehovah God And Israel, all through the Old Testament, goes out and follows other gods. Baal, Ashtoreth, Moloch, the gods of the Canaanites, constantly cheating on God with idols. Verse 22 has another question. You who abhor idols, you hate them. 
Do you rob temples? Some have said that simply means they're not giving their tithes and offerings. Others said, what is this? And this is the tricky one. What is this robbing temples? Possibly this. Watch this. Hey, we hate idolatry. Yeah. There's temples around us, these pagan temples, and they have these carvings and these statues and these molten things. We're going to go in at night. You distract, and I'm going to go over, and I'm going to swipe them, right? And we're doing God a favor because we're going to rid them of their idols. And it sounds... Well, that's sin because it's stealing. It's just straight up stealing. But here's the worst part. Now what are we going to do with them? Dude, you see the gold in this? Let's melt it down and we'll make money. It's like, wow, that was easy. Let's go do another one and another one. Are you robbing? You know it's wrong to steal. You know it's wrong to commit adultery. You hate idols. Really what you love is the money you get from robbing temples. In fact, Deuteronomy 7, verse 25, this is in direct opposition to what God told children of Israel before they went into Canaan. He says, the carved images of their gods, when you guys go in and take over Canaan, you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it, for it's an abomination to the Lord your God. You will not have that. Do not even be tempted by it. Now, can we apply this just very quickly? You see what he said? You preach it's wrong to, sin, wrong to steal, wrong to commit adultery. You say you hate idolatry, but really you have spe- uh, selfish reasons for going in and stealing those things and selling them. Not being mean. You know what this sounds like? It sounds like the overweight PE teacher, right? <laughs> Is Jarvis in here? Where are you at, Jarvis? Right in front of me. Jarvis be a great PE teacher, right? Kids, you need to... Be healthy and eat right and exercise. And the kids are going to go, oh, well, apparently he believes it. But I'm going to tell you, it just doesn't ring true when the kids know, now you get out there and you exercise and, well, and it's like, yeah, right, she really believes that. Or the dentist who has no teeth. It's like, what? Paul says, you know this, you even teach it, but you don't do it hey on a serious note you know what's real sad because this really does happen preachers committing adultery while preaching against adultery the series they're in what's your series right now a series on the home and marriage they're in adultery at the moment can you imagine what how do you how would you do that Apparently very easily because many have done it. Here's one, and you know it's true. Sitting in a room or a big chamber, and I don't mean just signing off yay or nay on a tax bill. I mean actually drafting the thing. I have a motion. We need to raise taxes to do this. But when you dig a little deeper, you find out they're skirting their taxes. Burns us up, doesn't it? You raised, you're the one that introduced that. You raised our taxes, but you're not paying your taxes. Are you kidding me? Another one. Parents, get over here. I told you not to say that. That's wrong. Those are filthy words. And they spanked the kids only to find out, where did you learn to talk like that? You. Mama. Mama says that. You say that when you get mad at mama. Don't you do what we say and not what we do. Right? Teaching the kids it's wrong to steal, but you make a habit of stealing from your employer by robbing time and not working. 
Verse 24, look at it quickly. For it is written, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, because of the Jews. God's name is blasphemed. Write this down. It's a simple fact. Don't just write it, taste it. It's a simple fact. You say, well, this is a message about the Jews. Apply this to yourself. It is a simple fact that when proclaimed followers of Christ fall into open sin, it does damage to Jesus' name. Can I say that again? When people who proclaim to be a follower of Christ fall into open sin, and I'm, I'm going to say the word open there is key. You say, hey, sin is sin. Absolutely, it is sin. All sin is sin. I understand that. But when we live in open sin, a couple of things happen. Number one, God's name is drugged through the mud. That is awful. But number two, the person that should be looking at our life as an incentive to abandon their sin and turn to Christ to forgive and forsake and heal them from their sin, there's no incentive because we're not abandoning our sin. Do you see that? When we who claim, now here's the problem. I think there are really two problems. Here's problem number one. You have people who claim to be followers of Christ, but they're really not. That causes problems. You say, how does that cause a problem? Because they live a certain way, and people around the county think, that's a Christian. Okay, what made you think they're a Christian? Because they go to church. And so our society, or the people think they're a Christian because they go to church. And so they're living a very sinful life, and the world sees that and is like, well, apparently that's the way Christians are. By the way, somebody help me out. What does Jesus say that is? We have wheat in our congregation this morning, and we have, what is it again? Tares. Tares. Looks just like wheat. Goes down to the 9.30 or the 10.30 service. They show up on Wednesday night. You say, who, they, who are they? I don't know. It'll be revealed on the last day. Who here really is a believer in Christ and who isn't? It will be revealed. But until then, often that group gives Christ a bad name because of how they live their life. The second problem, second group, is some who really are saved, but they live carnal, sinful lives, and it really makes everybody look bad. Verse 24 again, for as it's written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul is really preaching to his people. He loves them, but he knows, Jews, you've been living in a way in the world that really has turned the world off. Help me out. The number one commandment in Scripture, Old or New Testament, what is it? Number one commandment, thou shalt, they thought the Sabbath was number one, but Jesus made it clear. What's the greatest commandment? Thou shalt. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. And the second is like it. What's the second greatest commandment? Love your, love your neighbor as you love yourself, right? Love God, love your neighbor. Here's what Paul's talking about. Jews, you give a bad name to God. You know why? Because of how you live your life. You're mainly known as people who despise Gentiles. It's really bad. One of the Roman historians, a man named Tacitus, wrote the following as an outsider who observed the Jews. He literally wrote this quote, watch this, about the Jews. Here's what he wrote. Among themselves, their honesty is inflexible. They are honest with each other. Their compassion, quick to move. Got a problem? Hey, let's all help. And they help each other. And they're honest with each other. But to all other persons, they show the hatred of antagonism. You know what Tacitus is saying? Oh, they're honest with each other, but they'll rip you off in a heartbeat. You say, Jeff, are you up there ripping on the Jews today? I'm preaching a passage. I love the Jews. I hope America sides with the Jews. We'll be blessed for it. My Savior is a Jew. I have a heart for the Jews. 
They have the best heritage. But Paul, who was one of them, is blistering them. He's really blistering them. What happened? Write this down. The Jews used their advantages, and they had definite advantages. They used their advantage. Here's the problem, though. To set themselves on a pedestal. So this morning, by virtue of you being able to see those who are up here, I'm on a raised platform. The Jews took all the advantages of God. Watch this. Oh, there is a God, and that's your name. And you like that, and you don't like that. It is possible to live with you forever in heaven, and that's how. And they took all that in, and they let it raise them up on a pedestal instead of a platform to reach the world of the Gentiles. They treated the divine truths, all those things. God shows them things, and they treat them like a a, a stock tip, right? It's almost like going back to 1980, and you know know then what you know now about Walmart and Microsoft, right? If you did and you could, you would go back, and you may borrow $10,000 knowing that you're going to more than get it back. Say, I don't have the money, but you would do it knowing. If I knew knew then what I know now. Here's what the Jews did. They got this information, but they kept it to themselves. We don't want to tell anybody else. And so they raised themselves on a platform, and they look at everyone else beneath them and pass judgment on them. Now, can I make one real quick application? Because I find this. Here's something that bothers me. I've noticed this. Some Christians will learn truths from God, get saved, And they think that puts them on a pedestal and allows them to pass judgment on everyone else that's around them. And so they can spot sin there and spot sin there. And you can tell it really irritates them and it bothers them. They talk about them from a good safe distance away. And when you ask them, now, have you ever told them about Jesus? No. But they're very judgmental. In fact, you ask them, have you ever led even one person to Christ? No. But I can tell you they're wrong and they're wrong. And it's like, you know what Paul's saying? You're giving God a bad name. You're keeping it all to yourself. You know the truth. I wrote a thought down. When you see sin and don't help by giving the truth, you forfeit the ability to have disdain. You forfeit it because you didn't help. I'll also contend on the other side of that same coin. When you see sin and do help, you will not want to disdain. You'll have a burden for the person. Don't let our knowledge of Scripture and your relationship with God puts you on a pedestal. Let it be a platform. Lord, can I share? Oh, I'm actually commanded to share this. William Barclay writes several things that the Jews were known for that really irritated the Gentile world around them in this time period. You say, what are they? Sabbath observance. I'm going to mention it twice. You know what many of them, basically the Jewish attitude, I'm sorry, the Gentile attitude toward the Jews, they're just lazy. It's just pure lazy. It's a, clo- it's a cloak. And no doubt many of the Jews were observing the Sabbath day and keeping it holy. But no doubt many of them, it was just being lazy. Another opportunity to be lazy. This really bothered the Gentiles. Jews were allowed to keep temple tax money and even have outside money from outside the country sent down to Jerusalem to line people's pockets. The Romans let the Jews have their own courts and their own laws and it really bothered people. The Romans let the Jews be exempt from conscription to the Roman army. They don't have to, they don't have to, when, we're, when they're conquered, they don't have to go fight in the Roman army? Absolutely not. Why not? Because of their Sabbath laws. They're not going to fight. We can't guarantee that war will always be on Sunday through Friday. 
and they're not going to be any use to it. So they get out of it. And we hear that and we're like, our kids, we get dominated by the Romans. Our, our young people, our young men have to go fight for them. Well, what if you don't want to fight? Well, if you turn and run, they're going to kill you for desertion. If you don't fight, then the enemy's going to kill you. So you end up giving your best for the Roman army. But they don't have to. No. Why? Because of Sabbath. They get all kinds of advantages. But again, here's the main one. They're hateful. They're hateful. They disdain everyone else. Before we look at the third point, could we apply that one very quickly? I love Christians. I promise I do. But sometimes we say God is love, but many Christians are known as the most hateful customers on the route. They really are. Some are known as the most hateful people in the store. Christians. Today, I don't say this. I've never been a waiter or waitress. I'm telling you what they say. They say that servers on Sunday find that Christians, because, oh, there they are, 1145, 12 o'clock, or in Grace View's case, 1230, here they come, right? Here they come. And what they find is we are the most demanding and leave the smallest tips. It gives God a bad name, I'm just telling you. Why would they want it? Don't be that. Here's one. Christians are often the most judgmental people. Some give off an air of superiority to people who are unchurched or people who live in open sin. And, and you can really see it's like they don't want to really get... It's like you, you, they don't say it, but you stay over there on that side, in that line. I'm over here. Almost like engaging in a conversation would defile them. Christians in the workforce may go in on Monday and name the name of Christ because they're on a spiritual high, but by the end of the week, they're seen as a person of poor character, abusive language, and shady business practices, and it makes God look bad. It really does. Causes harm to the name of Christ. Here's one. Preachers, pastors. Say, so what about them? Do you know that pastors and youth pastors are known to be some of the laziest people in the county? The laziest. What do they do? Now, some have a total wrong idea of what they do. But they're just like, they don't work. And people see that and it turns them off. I don't know why we can't have balance because it seems like, and it is a struggle, it seems like it's either workaholic, (laughs) all work, or lazy. And the Bible preaches to preachers. Some churches, again, right before we do our third point, I mean like local congregations. Do you know there are some that are literally known around as unsociable, hateful, mostly known for what they're against? Hey, Grace View, please, let's don't ever be that. Can we be this? Can we be the people that acknowledge we have sin and we battle sin in the flesh, but we are going to battle sin in the flesh and we're going to help hold each other accountable and we're going to do all that without judgmentalism and divisiveness? Right? Can we be that? Hey, we're not perfect. We're fighting sin. We are fighting sin, but it's still there. And it doesn't, the, the grace of God in our life doesn't make us any better than anyone else. We're going to still love them. We're going to use the grace of God and salvation we have as a platform. Because sometimes Christians, literally, they're the most divisive in the family. Right? The extended family, Thanksgiving, Christmas. It's like, oh, we've got to worry about, is, she gonna, is it acceptable with her? And it's the Christian down at the homeowners association, oh, we got to keep the Christian family happy because they really get riled up. 
ought not be. Then lastly, verse 25 through 29, Paul says there's not only empty claims and a mismatched life, but there's misplaced trust. This is the real problem. There's misplaced trust. And he breaks it down into two categories. Would you look with me first, verse 25 to 27. He says, for circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who's uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. Now, I realize we've got some younger folk, and honestly, I mean, when would you ever know? We were raised in church, right? And it's like, I keep hearing that word. What is circumcision? Okay, next question. Another, any other questions? So, what is it? First point this morning under this, there's two thoughts under misplaced trust. Number one, circumcision doesn't save because it's about the heart. So what is circumcision? I'm not going in depth in any means. Circumcision is the outward mark of the covenant that God made with Abraham and his descendants. All right, great. It's an outward mark. What is it? It's the cutting away of the foreskin in the male's. So male babies are born with foreskin in their male anatomy. So what happens? They cut the foreskin away for Jews on the eighth day after birth. Why? Well, actually there is a physical benefit. Because that foreskin, if left, allows filth to build in the folds. And what ends up happening is when that person has a relationship with Someone else, they pass that filth off to them. So circumcision keeps the physical uncleanness down. But that's not the reason of circumcision. The greater purpose is this. It illustrates that spiritual uncleanness is constantly being passed to the next generation from fathers. I'm a sinner. I was born a sinner. I was born with a nature that loved sin. Why? Because Charles Bartlett was a sinner. Why? Because Ernest Bartlett was a sinner, whose father was a sinner, whose father was a sinner, whose father was a sinner, back to this person called Adam. We get it honestly. And so here's the point. That love for sin and that filth in the life, okay, physically you cut the foreskin, not for physical purposes, but because it's symbolic of something spiritual because this uncleanness has to be cut out of the heart by God. And so it was the outward mark of the relationship and the covenant with God. Here's the problem. So what's the problem? The problem with circumcision, literally, I'm not joking, Jews felt that merely having this physical surgery performed on them at the bequest of their parents, quite without their consent, eight days old, They think this physical surgery done to them somehow means they've obtained eternal life. Think about that. Why are you going to heaven? Because we have the law. I've got a copy of the Bible, and and I know a lot about the Old Testament. Really? You seriously believe that? Absolutely. Anything else? Yes. When I was eight days old, I was circumcised. Really? Your parents decided to have a surgery done to you. You had nothing to do with it. Frankly, if you had a say, you would have said, please, no, don't. I don't like that. But they did it anyway, and you think, yeah, I'm going to heaven because of that. Are you kidding? Hey, can I tell you something? We hear that today and we say, that is silly. But do you know the Jewish list that I gave you is more impressive than the ones we offer? We offer really serious reasons sometimes why we think we're going to heaven. In a moment, I'll ask you why you think you're going to heaven. 
Verse 25 to 27, here's what it shows. Paul gives a case. Watch this. There's a Gentile. Watch this. He doesn't worship other gods because he knows about Jehovah God. And he doesn't make idols. And he sure doesn't take God's name and use it flippantly or as a byword. He doesn't commit murder. He doesn't steal. He doesn't commit adultery. He doesn't lie. He doesn't covet. In fact, he honors the Sabbath and he honors his father and mother. Just one thing, he's never been circumcised. Okay. Paul says he is more acceptable to God than the Jew who is circumcised but worships with other gods and takes God's name in vain and has hatred in his heart and dishonors his father and mother and tells lies and covets all the time. And commits adultery. Paul is not saying that the person is saved because of how they live. But he's saying, man, if they do that, even without their circumcision, it makes you look really bad because all you have is religion. All you have is religion. It hasn't really affected your life. Secondly and lastly, physical birth doesn't save either. Why? Because it's important. God has no grandchildren. God doesn't have grandchildren. You see on your handout that this passage reminds us of the words of John the Baptist. I'll read them in John, Matthew chapter 3, verse number 4 through 9. What would happen with John the Baptist? So here's these Jews, and Paul's telling them, do you seriously think because you're born a certain way, you're automatically going to heaven? You have the law, you had a surgery, and because you're born with Abraham's blood, you really think you're going to heaven. Verse number 4, John the Baptist, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around about the Jordan were going out to him. Man, this is the buzz. We've got to go out and see what's going on with John. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. People are getting right with God. They're going public, getting baptized. Everything's great. Verse 7, uh-oh. When John saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, you snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't say you're right with God. Your lives don't look like you're right with God. You need to bear fruit of repentance. In verse 9, And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. That's a blistering message. What are you guys doing here? Well, we just want to come see what it's all about. Who told you to come? Why don't you repent? Why don't you have a life change that shows you've really repented? You brood of vibe. Don't come out here with that. We're Abraham's kids. Abraham's kids. God can raise up Abraham's children to, out of these stones. Don't give me that. You're like, man, is he right? John, Jesus in John chapter 8. John chapter 8. We don't have time to give all the background. Verse number 37. He's also talking to a group of people. He says, I know that you're an offspring of Abraham. I know that. Yet you seek to kill me. Because my word finds no place in you. You want to kill me. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. By the way, the devil. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. Hey guys, catch what I'm saying. What Paul wrote in Romans chapter 2, I cannot tell you the force it would have hit a Jew. When they hear this read, their whole view of themselves and their heritage is immediately thrown into a tailspin. Paul is actually insinuating that, that 
we are not true children of, of Abraham because we have his blood in our veins. In fact, what's worse, Paul is insinuating he's leaving the door open for Gentiles all around the world to come to the conclusion that they can be the descendants of Abraham, not because they have his blood in them, but because they have his faith. And I say, amen. You say, Jeff, does a Christian who receives Jesus as their Savior, do they become a Jew? No, they don't, but we become a person of Abraham's descendant on the faith side. We don't become a Jew. You say, what about a Jew? What they need to know is you still need to trust Christ. Don't abandon your heritage, but don't think without Christ you're going to get to heaven because of your heritage. It will never work. The, the trust is misplaced. Why? They honestly thought, catch this, a one-time surgery coupled with their heritage means they have eternal life even though they have no evidence of the life of God in them. There should be evidence of holiness, evidence of love for people, evidence of sharing that love, but they had none of it. They just bottled it all up for themselves. And Paul is saying, you're showing no signs of real Christianity. Would you look one more time, Romans 2, verse 28 and 29. I'm not going to read the passage word for word, but can I make an application? You ready? Look at verse 28. For no one is a Christian. He's merely one outwardly. Nor is baptism outward and physical. But a Christian is one inwardly. And baptism is a matter of the heart. By the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Can I read again? For no one is a Christian who's merely one outwardly, nor is church membership outward and physical. But a Christian is one inwardly. And church membership, really church membership, I mean capital C, the church all around the world, it's a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Jews don't rely on a surgery, don't rely on a possession and a knowledge of the law, and don't rely that you are physical descendants of Abraham. You're going to end up short. I'm telling you, you will face the judgment. You are not exempt. Christian, you who call yourself a Christian, do you think you're going to get in because I was baptized? My mama made me get baptized when I was 10 years old. Or I've been a, a member down at the church. Or I read my Bible. Do you really think that's going to get... Listen, God has no grandchildren. Just close your eyes just for a moment. I told you I was going to ask you this. This time for us, each week, we're not going to do the same thing. Today, it's a little different. But it's a very important time. You say, why are we closing our eyes? Not because anything magical happens by closing your eyes. Please understand that. I want you to do this. I hope you'll participate. And I hope those that are coming to the stage will in no way look out uh, and in any way hinder someone from being transparent, not with me, but with themselves and with God. I want you to evaluate your life. Please don't lose this opportunity. You say, this message was about Jews today. As you sit there right now, here's my question. As you evaluate your own life, do you have empty claims? Do you have any empty claims? Do you have a mismatched life? You say one thing, but frankly, the Holy Spirit pointed out you have other things that go exactly against what you say. And most importantly, do you have misplaced trust? Because here's my question. Are things right between you and God? And by that I mean, 
do you have eternal life? I, I want you to really taste that. Don't tune out. Focus. I'm going to ask you to respond in a moment. Here's the question again. Are things right with your soul and spirit and God and you know that when death comes and calls you and you leave this world, do you know that you will go to heaven if that is you? Would you just hold your hand? Doesn't have to be really high, but enough where I can see it. Hold your hand up and hold it up a second. You say, oh, I know. I know I'm a Christian. If that is you, would you raise your hand? Hold it and keep it there just a moment. You say, I know I'm a Christian. Many, many hands. Would you take them down? Here's my question for you. What are you trusting? Why did you raise your hand? I literally, I want everyone to answer that. If you just raise your hand and say, oh, I know I'm a Christian. Why do you think you're going to heaven? List it in your, in your mind, like right now. Talk to yourself. Oh, I know I'm going to heaven because... You got something? Keep saying it. I know I'm going to heaven because... Here's my question. Is it a Bible reason? If it's a Bible reason, go to a passage of Scripture in your mind. You say, I can't remember the exact location. I don't know the exact wording. Is it a Bible principle? Go to a Bible principle in your mind and say, I know I am going to heaven. Here's why. It is a Bible reason. You say, I can't come up with a Bible reason. Then you might need help today. And so I'm going to ask the same question a little bit different this time. Heads bowed, eyes closed, please no one looking around. And again, this isn't so much for me. This is to begin transparency. It starts with an acknowledgement of a person with God. Anyone here this morning say, hey, I, I literally, when I'm trying to think of why I know I'm going to heaven, I, I've assumed I'm going to heaven, but I don't have a Bible reason, so I'm really not sure I'm going to heaven. If that is you, would you raise your hand this morning? Just keep it up for a moment. Anyone? Would you raise your hand? Keep it up for a moment. I will take that, that everyone here today claims to be a Christian, so I have two questions. Number one, Christian, is there something in your life this past week that has caused harm to the name of Christ? Is there anything in your life this past week Paul told the Jews that their lives were causing harm to the cause of Christ. Hey guys, let's leave pure every week. And it starts with being intentional in this time. Is anyone here this morning, this is not a confession to me, this is an acknowledgement to the Lord. No one looking around, please. Please, no one on stage looking around. Honor that, please. Anyone here this morning saying, you know what, preacher, I know the message was for Jews today. But God convicted me. I've had something in my life that people know I claim to be a Christian and I've got something that it, it'll definitely cause harm to the cause of Christ if I don't get it right. No one looking. Would you slip your hand up? Anybody? Several. Anybody else? Several. You can take them down once you put them up. Literally 30%. He died for us. Please don't walk out with that. You say, what do I need to do? Confess it. God, by my actions, I know I'm saved. But you raised your hand or you didn't raise your hand on the second question. Here's the thing. Lord, I know I'm saved, but my life sure is not 
giving you a good name. Lord, I, I, I can do damage. Please let me stop doing that. And if I need to, I need to go to apologize to someone. Will you leave here today getting that right? And here's my last question. This may be one person. I really want us to evaluate. One, maybe one person, maybe you. Is there anyone here you say, Brother Jeff, I am saved. I'm on my way to heaven. But I have really become very judgmental of the lost world around me. But worst, I've never told them about Jesus. I am not a soul winner. I spot sin. I condemn it. Man, it irritates me, but I don't. I'm no better than the Jews. I've just let my place with Christ. Put me on a platform, on a pedestal. I'm not using it as a platform to bring people to Christ. I'm just judging real quietly. Anyone this morning say, Brother Jeff, that's, I've, I've been that person. Did you raise your hand? Wow, again, several. Thank you for your honesty. Lord, thank you for talking to people this morning and pointing out things in our life that are not in alignment with what your word says. And Lord, thank you that though we've looked at a passage that's very Jewish, that Lord, we can apply it to our own lives. Your Holy Spirit has to do that. So we thank you for that. Now, Lord, would you please do a deep, deep work in our hearts and our lives Lord, if someone this morning needs to commit, Lord, not make a vow that they don't mean, but Lord, to commit to you that by your grace and by your prompting, they're going to be a witness, a soul winner this week. Lord, knowing you're responsible for the results, but we can be faithful to tell people about Christ. And Lord, if there's someone this morning that by raised hand, God acknowledged, they really can't even begin to witness because their life just doesn't back it up and it's offensive. And they want to get that right today. Lord, would you please, while we sing, do a deep, deep work within us.